What's up, guys? My name is Doc Robinson, and this is our first edition of Doc's Jazz Beat. And I have a very special guest, one of my homeboys from Philly. You guys welcome <laughs> Mr. Gerald Veasley. What's up, Gerald? Hey, Doc. How are you? Man, just just hanging in there, you know, just uh, <laughs> trying to uh, stay here at uh, Fort Living Room and stay safe. <laughs> Well, man, thank you for having me on. This is the inaugural presentation. I'm honored, man, that you would call upon me. But I appreciate appreciate you, man. You know I'm going to call you first, man. That's what we do, right? We go way back so. like two broke car seats, right? <laughs> <laughs> we really do go way back. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, man, playing you in the background. And I don't know, I don't know if I had a dollar... For every show I've done with you, I'd be I'd have a little money, a little change right about now, right? Well, hopefully you made a dollar from every show you did. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, thanks for on behalf of myself, not just as your friend, but as a musician, man. Thank you for um, you know, doing what you've done for us musicians, you know, just providing so many vehicles for us to perform and share our gifts and build our audiences and build our networks, man. It's it's and I think yeah I was appreciating it of course even before the times that we're in now but I think many of us now we can see the value right. you know, that, that people like you um, offer by giving us a platform to do what we love so thank you brother you should, you should receive your roses <laughs> <laughs> well I think that people like me we're all uh, uh, jazz heads that wanted to play at some point in time and so we tried to figure out What's the closest that we can get to live music? What's the best seat that I could have in the house? And I'm telling you, it's been a great almost 30 year ride of like being up front. You know, it's like having an NBA ticket for the for the front row, what they call the Gucci <laughs> row. So I'm always, uh, on the, <laughs> I'm always on the Gucci row of jazz, especially with you know, guys cool. like you, because you don't get to hang around and, and pick the brain of jazz legends like yourself. Well, man, you know, without folks loving the music and supporting the music, the equation just doesn't work. You know that equal sign. You know right. how they have it in school. Right. You gotta, it's you gotta have both sides of the equation. And so, without you all, there is no artistry. Point blank, without people to appreciate, love, and support the music, it just doesn't work. So. I know earlier today we were talking about uh, Chick Corea and not just him, but Al Jarreau and a lot of oh, the jazz yeah. greats and what the talking about the equal sign, what the, the, the separator is from their generation to the next just generation. It sometimes it can be overwhelming and scary. What do you think about that? Um, yeah, well, you know, we feel the loss, you know, of all the people you've mentioned because they're not really replaceable. Uh, right. Got to throw George Duke in there too, right? You know, people like that. Of course, Grover. I mean, you, it's not plug and play. You know, this it's not. Uh, right. You know, it's these are people that um, created such a legacy and were so amazingly talented and prolific right. that yeah, you just can't replace them. So for me, my challenge is to appreciate them while they're here, to really, you know, like yesterday I spent so much time like listening to and looking at, you know, Chikoria videos, Return Forever videos. And, I, and whenever this happens, I always think, man, you should be doing this all the time. Right. 
while these giants walk among us. Right. Because yeah. I think their music feeds us. You know, mm-hmm. it changes your emotions. It excites your creativity. And uh, it just never gives you a dull moment. I played something on the Midday Jazz Show that I did earlier today. And uh, it was a song that was 35 years old. And, and I had people online. So-and-so's playing the drums. So-and-so's playing the sax. So-and-so's playing, you know, the bass. Stanley Clark's on the bass. And, you know, it was just a thing where people, you know, great music recognizes great music. So if you have people that recognize great music, that's all you can do is put out great music like you do. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's a uh, it's bittersweet, though, you know, because <laughs> and we've talked about this, too, before. Right. You know, when, when music changes, it just changes. It doesn't get necessarily better. You know, right. sometimes it, sometimes there's a diminishment of the quality right. or the standard. But, you know, it changes. And I mm-hmm. think about I hear my father's voice all the time, like the music I was listening to versus what he was listening to. He's like, that ain't right. no music. Right. And, and in a way, <laughs> you know, I didn't like hearing him say that. Right. But, but later on, I understood what he meant. Just the depth exactly. of quality. Yeah, it was, you know, it was another level. Yeah, it, it uh, you know, and the music, I think it doesn't make an announcement when it's going to take a turn. It just takes a turn, and you have to either go with it or stay where you're at. And uh, I think that's point. what you and I were talking earlier uh, about Chick Corea. And I think there were a few artists that were kind of coming up, kind of doing that, but then they took a turn. And so the the people like Chick Corea, their music is is. You, know, you were saying earlier, you, you're fearful that it will we're losing the last of our great legends, or one of them at least. Yeah, it feels like the beginning of the end of an era. You know, Correct. all those those artists who in that period, well, Chicory, of course, transcends eras, you know, going back to the, the you know, the 60s. And, and, and then but his work with that post bitches brew era uh, in a silent way era and then the, the burgeoning of fusion. That was just such an incredible era for, for me, you know, and the folks that came out of that, the bands that came out of that. That's the other thing. Right. You know, Return to Forever and uh, Weather Report and uh, Mahavishnu Orchestra and Herbie Hancock, Herbie Hancock and the Headhunters and on and on. These were like seminal heroes to right. us playing. And because one of the turns from jazz before then was not just the, the rock or the funk influence, which was clear, right? That they were using instruments differently, more electric, less acoustic. The songs were a little bit different, more, uh, well, they were sophisticated in their own ways. Right. Less about the chord changes, though. But what was interesting about the band structure is that now, instead of having, like, one soloist out front and everybody supporting, and then people taking turns solos, you had these amazing ensembles where you have, like, four or five people all step into the front. It felt like almost at the same time with this high energy so they kind of recreated the whole idea of of what a band looks like and how musicians um can step forward versus waiting their turn you know so it was really revolutionary in so many ways mm-hmm. yeah i think that um it, it, i guess we shouldn't be scared of the future because we don't know what the future entails so a lot of time we're saying this is the end of an era, but it could be something that's so crazy that we forget about 
30 years ago it's like these new cats out now you know just like when you watch the nba uh i was talking i was getting a haircut the other day and the guy was kind of a newer type of coach and he's like doc these kids are they're having trainers at 12 and 13 years old and they're going over like professional uh plays and sets they're coming right to college ready to go to the pros so I, I equate that with the new style of musicians. They don't have to. They have more electronic resources. They don't have to go through what some of you guys have gone through 30 and 40 years ago. They can step right out the box if they have talent and, and really bring their skills, you know, up to sh- shape very quickly. And uh, yeah. Also, yeah. No, no, no. That That's so true. And, you know, a great example of that is the use of YouTube. Correct. You know, you see these kids, 12, 13 years old, who do some astounding things because they are really immersed in learning music in a whole different way. Not having to you know, use a record player or a turntable or even a CD player, but having music coming right to them where they can see visually how to do what it is they do. And so they, often they can just uh, learn so quickly. And you're right. There's there's level of levels of virtuosity now that probably that we've never seen these young precocious musicians. Um, and you're right too. We shouldn't get stuck in just nostalgia. We should appreciate what's coming next because it you know even as it changes, as we lose some things, we gain some other things. You know, we gain new perspectives. I mean, when you think about the the whole arc of jazz history. You know, the jazz that we listen to is different from the music we heard in the 60s, 50s. That was different from the music of the 40s. That was different from the music of the 30s and the 20s. That was different from the music of the turn of the century. So it's always evolving, always changing. The question is, what do you want to keep even as you move away? You know, like in my view, you want to keep the improvisation. You want to keep that spirit of adventure. You want to keep the freshness if you can, even if... Even if the form changes, you try to keep that. And getting back to Chikoria, when looking at those old uh, film clips and looking at them when they were young, that was one of the big takeaways for me, just how adventurous and excited they were to play. And they were just having fun. They weren't concerned about their reputations yet because they didn't have any. (laughs) Right, 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 right. They, they, you know... They were trying to put one step in front of the other one, but they didn't know what that new step entailed. It's like, we're just going to play and whatever comes out and some things they kept, some things they threw out, but it's, they had a freedom to, there was no rules. It's like, this is what we're doing. Yeah, that's so true. And that's the blessing of youth, right? You don't well, have to live up to anything. You, right, just, right, right. you just go. Yeah. Well, I think I think it's also... There was no broadcast architecture. There was, you know, not putting your music in a box. Um, so now we have people making music for the radio or for, you know, uh, some type of streaming service. You know, if you, Gerald, if you have, you know, vocals at the end of your record and it's over four minutes and 19 seconds, uh, I don't know if you're going to get air. Okay, let's go back. We got to cut this where Miles Davis wasn't cutting anything. Matter of fact, he made albums, one song on the whole album. And he's like, what? Pick your, pick your spot. <laughs> that's, that's, you know, I can't argue with that, man. You're, you're right on the money because it's not this musicians became less adventurous or, but it's also the folks, the gatekeepers, right? Who are, right. who are suggesting do this and don't do that. It's like they are less adventurous. And I, I think sometimes, unfortunately, 
our industry is it's it has fear baked into it. Like are right. you afraid that you're not getting the right sales and afraid that you're not going to get, you know, the right kind of airplay. And then for in radio, they're afraid. They're afraid that they're not going to have sponsors and, right. and advertisers. So it kind of runs rampant or, you know, promoters who, Oh, I went too far tonight. I think we had a glitch in the system. Promoters, promoters are never wrong. <laughs> but, but you know, it's you know, being you know, that's part of the business part, right? Just you know, all of that. People are you know making calculations, and then sometimes when those calculations that we have to make in business. Sometimes it, it crosses with the with decisions around the music itself. And it's just something that that's always going to be there. Um, I say one encouraging thing and that I think we learned to some extent from the hip hop generation, which is to take more control from a business standpoint of the music. The, but it, not I'm talking anything about the music itself, but that idea of having agency and, and being empowered to like do your own. You know what I mean? I think we've learned a lot from them. Well, I think, and then I think one of the people who were, was a tra- trailblazer for that was like Jay Z, where he started selling stuff at the back of his car, and you know he had a process for it, and you know he made millions off of selling his own and counting every penny, and it's what our forefathers were trying to do, but it didn't always happen because, like we were talking about earlier in the conversation, there's times when you know you're going to lose. And you know this move, it's a good move for your career, but it's not a good move for your pocketbook. And so I think a lot of the hip-hop artists wanted to do both. They wanted a good move for their career and their pocketbook. And so Absolutely. which choice did you make, you know, when you're mm-hmm. hungry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, people like Master P, you have to include him in that. Yes, that exactly. To, to, to. So, but I think one of the advantages they had, one of the things they figured out, was that there didn't have to be a gatekeeper between them and their audience. It's like, I don't need you to get to my audience. That's my audience. Right. So so they figured out a way they didn't need. I mean, eventually, of course, you know, people working with major labels and so on, they could get to bigger audiences, but still they recognized their worth, they recognized their value, and they understood they had a direct channel. And we, we owe it to the internet, too. It was helpful in that, in terms of people being able to you know, get directly to the people that love their music. Well, that's, it's funny you should say that because I was talking to Michael Henderson and that's the thing he appreciates about now than in the past. He said, I didn't realize how much management and record labels kept me away from my audience. You know, after mm. the show, I just could, I was ushered away from the crowd. So I could never really step out and, you know, talk to the crowd or never was a part of them. But this, this internet uh, has allowed him to be face to face with his fans for the first time in 35 years. He can actually go online and talk to them and have a conversation. But before, the labels didn't let you interact like that. That's f- so fascinating. I've thought about that. I think to some extent it's like a Hollywood, an old Hollywood mindset where you have to have the artist has to have a mystique. You know, you got to have a wall between you exactly. and the audience. Exactly. And I don't, that doesn't work today. Right. You know, that doesn't work today. Well, I know there was one particular artist, I'll, I'll leave her unnamed, but she was having an issue with people taking photographs and, you know, pulling the camera out while she performed. And I think in a way that's kind of an old school thought of 
I don't want my music out there. I don't want you videotaping me. And somebody would be young. It's like, get your phones out. Get your popcorn ready. Put this on IG. Put this on everything. Because, yeah. more, you know what I'm saying? That's the way younger people think. No, no, no. Get your phone out. I want it out there. Because the kids with the phones, that's your marketing team. That's your marketing team. <laughs> they, they are helping to spread <laughs> right. you out. And, you know, it's funny because when I toured with Zavano, with Joe Zavano for a number of years, you know, um, he would have people on the crew to keep an eye out in the audience. Like to see, because back then it was the camera with the red light. Right. You know, so people would try to record you kind of under their under their coat or something like that. Yes. And they would have people send them out to the audience, like to get those tapes or to tell people to right. stop. And now all these years later, I, I regret that I don't have some so enough documentation of that period when I was playing with these really genius, great musicians because they just didn't allow it. No, no. You know, and part of it, too, is uh, there, there are a couple there are probably three reasons I could think of. One is that artists often are very self-conscious, too. So if they don't want to be recorded, they don't want to be taken away from that moment of making their art or making their singing or music, whatever it is. Right. You know, and sometimes the, the thought of a camera can be a little distracting. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's one piece. The other piece is you can't control the quality. You well, know, I think that's the biggest um, feedback that I got is like, well, I don't want to be caught playing the wrong note or singing out of key or blah 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 and i'm going well why would you do that anyway why why would you you know what i'm saying why would you worry about that if you're already performing you know if you're scared that somebody's going to catch it on camera and then put it online then you shouldn't be doing that so (laughs) i don't don't sing so i could be caught singing out of key at any time (laughs) i don't even know what to say to that doc because Oh, uh, wait a minute, you know, wait a minute, wait a minute. I got somebody saying, wait, wait, I think I got it. Hopefully find not it. me. But you know, you know, the thing about it is that those things last, at least in your mind. What, what you got going on? You better play something else. Yeah, I got somebody singing. Hotel, motel. Yeah, you were singing oh, that song. Lord, yeah, man. man. That's not singing. That's, that's clowning. Uh, <laughs> and the third reason that they're reluctant often, especially back in those days, was because people were taking videos and monetizing them. Correct. Right? And making DVDs. Well, that no longer it applies yeah. to anything. Right. Um, it's funny, though. <laughs> but you know what? I, I admire you that, you know, you're doing a great job of documenting. How many shows have you done at this point at, at Sweet? Oh, wow. Uh, over 200. Oh wow! Because you see, it's fifty a year. We've been doing it six years, so. Mm-hmm. And you've documented so many of those. Every single show. Every single show. See, yeah. so that's that's oh, wow. history. That's that's actually history is what it is. Because you never know, like all those artists that have come through there, and the amazing not just the the artists out front, but the the, the supporting band. Correct. I don't even call them house band because right. there's, there's got to be a better because I don't think people understand when they say house band it's like right. oh it's the house band but no, right. no. in Atlanta it's the house band it's like an A team of killers who could they're like A list players themselves correct so to have the documentation of, of those performances and different combinations of people 
you know, man, people like T. Lee and I mean, all these guys who are Les just Bird and, and, and Phil Chris, Davis. Chris, I mean, it's just so many uh, stories of this band and getting these phone calls, you know, like mm-hmm. James Lloyd calling me. And he says, hey, white guy, you got in your band, the guitar player. What's his name? I said, Chris. He says, I, I got I got to have him. I'm like, you need him for a gig? He says, no, no, no. I need him to be in Pieces of a Dream. Yeah, yeah. So for yeah. the last three and a half years, he's been a member of Pieces of, of a Dream. It's the same thing when ha- we had Nathan East. And uh, Nathan calls me uh, the next day and he says, I need everybody's name and phone number. I said, is everything all right? He says, yes. He says, I just want to call them or send them a text personally to thank them for the wow. show. Then he calls me two days later and he goes, you know, I'm doing a jazz festival in Florida and I need, you know, some cats to go down. I said, well, who you need the keyboard player? He says, no, I need the entire band. Yeah. Both keyboard players, saxophone. I need the, everybody you had on that stage. I will See? bring them to be my band. You know, for the Jacksonville Jazz Festival, and that's huge because he don't play. Yes, he doesn't play is. with house bands. You know? No, 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 no. That's why I don't even like that term. Again, you're talking about some really amazing musicians. I mean, and they bring it. I mean, when they play, you better you right. better be prepared. Right. You, know? <laughs> you know? You know? You know what? You know what I tell people because a lot of people are hesitant because they're protective of their music, and rightfully so. And I said, listen, let me tell you one thing about the band. They're like a Maserati. Is they're pretty to look at while it's sitting there, but I promise you, if you push the gas, they're going to go. If you push your foot on the gas, that Maserati is going to take off. And that's see, I don't know nothing about Maseratis. I think I understand. (laughs) You know, know they're fast and pretty, right? Ball is like you. You can use those analogies. No, but you're you're right. They they can definitely go, and it's you know they're willing to go. And you know I have to say uh, I really took that model. You know when we started our series in Philly, I'm so like proud I, of you too. On, on your yeah, series. but you know what? All I did, man, was just I took your playbook and just put my name on the front of it. <laughs> Wait a minute, let me you know, check it. I'm checking my know. wallet. I'm checking. You know, it's like it's empty. I don't. It's, okay. okay. <laughs> He said, property of Bill Belichick. Yes. I just took the Bill Belichick off. Okay. Oh, all right. <laughs> Put my name on it. And ran the, same, <laughs> it ran the same plays. <laughs> say run well, it back, right? That's it. No, but seriously, though, I mean, a, a lot, we adopted um, many of the same. That, first of all, adopting the mindset. That was the first thing. Right. That we're just talking about, the, of making sure of professionalism and the, you know, the business structure and... You know, just, uh, you know, how we how you treat talent when we come into town. Um, all of that is something that's, yeah, there's a lot folks can learn from from the way you do things. Absolutely. Well, I think a lot of it is is the way you treat people, like you just said. I mean, yeah, it's the money side of it. But to be honest, I think I've told you a few times a story about uh, doing a show with uh, Alex Munoz. And uh, after the show, we're sitting at the bar having a nice glass of red wine. And Alex looks over to me and he goes, oh, by the way, how much are you paying me for this show? The trust. <laughs> the trust. Yeah. This is just after the show. We hadn't even talked about the money. It was just a phone call. Hey, Alex, can you come on such and such a day? And he said, yeah, man, I'm there. And we never talked again. Right. So I think a lot of people, it's about relationships and, and all, trust. It's all about relationships. Um, Absolutely. If people don't trust you. They're not coming. Yeah. 
Yeah. No matter how well, much money is. The other thing that uh, I think we should maybe should talk a little bit about is audiences, because that's the other thing that you've really built. Talking about that equation again. Right. That's a huge part of the equation. What what you've built in terms of the connection of audiences to your <clears throat> excuse me to the artist to the venue to the music as a genre to the um, and of course to the uh, well the artist the venue and to you and to your series. It's like there's a connection, you know. Um, we we try to uh, create that in Philadelphia as well, where the audiences are. They're not just somebody that we you you, you bring us your money. Here's your ticket. Right. It's, no, there's a connection there. Like yeah. you're a part of this thing. Yeah, it's a relationship, you know. And I think mm-hmm. I've sent you many of you know texts that people have sent me that listen to my shows. I said, yeah, I've been to Philly and I've been to Gerald's place and the food was just amazing. And then he's just so nice and he comes around and he talks to you. And that means something to people, you know, because they feel like cheers where everybody knows who you are, you know? So you come there, I have people, they get the same seat. Their drink is ready from their, whatever they're eating. They don't even have That's to right. order it, you know? And it's like, they, it's home, you know? And they know they're going to, in this surrounding, I'm going to have a peaceful experience you know and that's what you try to give people and i think a lot of times they're looking out the window for the money instead of what's the content of what we're bringing you how does the sound sound you know what are we doing with that you know so i just think that you know you have to it's a setup and you know i I don't know if i told you where i kind of got the idea two places one that you would know about uh in particular the latin casino oh man yeah yeah i was a kid uh, when, you know, that was kind of really, you know, hot. But yep. everybody who was anybody came to the Latin Casino. You know, anybody that came, you you know, oh, Latin of course. Casino. And I then, saw some great shows there too. Right. And then Fabulous the other one, place. because I was in the Air Force and my first base was Austin, Texas, they had this show called Austin City Limits. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. what I, that's really where I got the premise for the show from is because in Austin City Limits, they would bring anybody. At first, it was, you know, country wrestling, rock, and all these things. Mm-hmm. That's when I first, where I first saw Christopher Cross, because he was from Austin. So him, him and all those guys would sing together in the same group. But then they mm-hmm. started bringing all kind of groups. And what I started noticing is people didn't really care. They didn't, might not have known who the group was, but they were coming for a show. And they knew that all of the shows that were there were great. So I don't. Who's the show next? I don't know. It's the Roots or some groups. I haven't heard of them, but I'm I'm going. And so that is one of the longest running musical shows. I think they've been almost fifty years. They've been on the air. It's crazy. Yeah, I remember. I knew. I've gotten to know through the years Terry Lacona, who was. Uh, I think he's a, one of the creators of the show, and certainly one of the producers, who's also been involved with the Grammys for a number of years. And, uh, you know, I, I think the running theme through a lot of what we're talking about is when you have real music people involved in things, good things right. happen. Exactly. And, and Terry, Terry Lacona is a pure music guy and a television guy, but, you know, someone who really reveres music and respects, you know, the artistry that musicians bring. So, uh, but yeah, so that's kind of, uh, that's interesting that that was part of the inspiration. You're yeah. doing what you're doing. Yeah, it was. And, you know, I just thought that, you know, you got to have a formula for what you do. I think some people just throw shows together. They bring an artist, they throw it together. And why aren't people here or why are people here? 
you know, and I and the other thing I've learned about the business is peaks and valleys. So in other words, it's just a, as much an, of an alert when you have a packed house as when you have an empty house. You know, hmm. you need to go back on Monday morning and talk to your staff. Okay, so how did this happen? How did we pack out this show? Instead right. of just sitting on Monday morning counting your money. Because it's an anomaly most of the time when it happens, but you got to figure out what that is so you can repeat it. Um, but we just want to talk about, oh, there's only 20 people here this week. And, you know, did they know who the artist was? Was it raining? Was it on the wrong day? But you got to figure out when it's packed, too. Like what that, that makes a lot of sense, yeah. So that right. you can re- try to repeat some of your successes, right? Uh, you know, I, I, of course, I got to mention Roxanne, my wife and business partner, because it, um, you know, she kind of came with the, the our formula mm-hmm. and the the, the 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 kind of the mechanism of how we would do things, and she's really good at that. That you just identified, uh, just in, in um, bookmarking what really works. Right. Exactly. And building that into your system and trying to correct things that don't work and try right. to learn from that. Right. Right. Um, I think that's super important for anyone to know in any field. And if, with you, too, with your background, not just in music, but having been in, 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 in charge of quality control for a major correct. brand and then your experience in the military. I mean, it's, it's, it's am I getting that right? There's always that. It's always that's where you have to measure what you're doing. Let's see what's effective. Right. Yeah. I mean, that was the rule when you talked about quality. You couldn't do anything that wasn't measurable. Mm. So we can't sit down and and pull out the numbers of and is. And and of course, in what we do, there are all kinds of numbers where people come from, how they heard about it, what time they come in, how much they spend on food, how much they what type of ticket they would buy. You know, it's all kind of measurables. And when you spread that out and really look at it, it it slaps you in the face like, okay, we're not doing this. We need to do that. And, um, you know, we have. But the thing is, I think it comes between the artists and the promoter. I don't like that word. But anyway, a producer and the owners to be on the same page because the owners are like thinking of what a car salesman told me about a car with a, a sunroof in it. You know, and I wanted to trade my car in. He said, well, son, you know, once you trade this car in, a sunroof ain't nothing but a hole in the roof to me. So bringing in a bringing in a band to a restaurant, the only thing that's one to one is the door. Mm. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, I think the misconception between a lot of uh, musicians is the fact that uh they feel like the club is packed and we're making this and the owners are getting rich. So a lot of times I had to sit them down and tell them because I'm on the other side of it in the management meetings. And it's listen, you know, food and food revenue is only one tenth. So if you bring in $10,000 of the people buying food, that's only a hundred dollars. By the time you play for staff and this and that, right. and beverages uh, is only like forty percent. So the only thing that's one to one is the door. But sometimes the door is a barrier. So it depends on who owns the restaurant, what they're willing to incur. That's right. That's right. Because sometimes the the music can be a lost leader if you're doing if you're winning in those other areas in the food and beverage area, then you know you can take a hit on the door. 
but you can only take so many hits. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> and so that's the delicate dance. And right. uh, I think the other thing that you're, you're kind of uncovering is the fact that as musicians, you know, we have to be tight in what our business is, but we have to also think about it as a collaboration. Right. Correct. So I'm going to I'm going to participate in the marketing for a lot of reasons. Number one, it makes me feel good when there's an audience out there. So just psychologically, it's right. good. Number two, from a business standpoint, that's something I can build on to create, you know, to build my audience, either for this venue or another venue and to sell merchandise. And number three, probably the most important reason that we don't think about is that we want we want the owner and presenter see I didn't use promoter we want the owner <laughs> we want the owner and presenter thank you, thank you. to win to win right. so that the venue can continue to thrive right? That's correct. right and so you can continue to bring in not just me but my my friends my colleagues the other artists because the more the more um, places we have a, a, that are thriving the better for all of us well let me ask you this this might hurt some people but it's okay being that you're now a presenter, uh, you have you know you have a lot of hats on, but one of your hats is to be a presenter, not a promoter, producer. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about artists that you're bringing that may not be a household name, but they're good, and you have trouble getting them to promote themselves to come to a show, or their fans to come to a show? That's a tricky one, and yeah, um, because, and you taught me this actually, uh, one of the things that I, Roxanne and I try to do is see what they do before. Like look at their history of promotion, right? If they're already on social media and get, being engaged and um, helping to spread the word about what they're already doing, then that's at least some indication that they have the ability and the um, propensity to do it with us. Doesn't mean they're gonna do it. Right. But, but at least that's in the toolbox. So that's a good starting point. Well what what I guess the statement I get most of all that kind of perturbs me is they say, Well, I'm not the promoter, you're the promoter. I'm just supposed to come in and play. I'm I'm not the promoter. And I'm like, well, you do want people to come see you, right? Yeah. I, I I'm on your it's side. Hard. It's hard. It's hard. And what we the conversation we try to have is like I don't want you to be the promoter. I don't even want you to market the shows, but I just want that everybody who loves your music that's in our region or in our area, yeah, exactly. I want them to know about it. Right. Because to me, the worst question I could ever get as a presenter is like, when are you gonna have um, John Doe at your venue? And I have to say, oh, he was there last week. That's my nightmare. So you, so you're nicer than me. <laughs> well because it means it means we didn't do our job or something's broken down because if they didn't know if they really want that artist and we haven't told them that they were just there last week or last month that's a problem right but but, but you 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 and Roxanne are much much uh, politically correct to me because you know what I tell them when I had this conversation when I'm thinking about booking them and they give me that line I said well you know I have a website for that and they said what is that brother it's called stayathome.com and so <laughs> That's just mean. That's just mean. <laughs> because a lot of people want to play, man, and and it's. It, but you know what's funny about it? Some of the older groups, you know, like Spyro Gyra, the Yellow Jackets, Hiroshima, 
they'll blow you up hey man uh, here's our publicist and you know, we want to get the pictures to you and uh where do we need to post it and do, do we have any interviews we need to get because they get it you know i think too is there's kind of a um we're in this gap we're like you know how they have a gap year right sort of in a gap period <laughs> where before Everybody had a label and an infrastructure to do all those things. Right. And now it's you. Right. You have to create all those things. But you know so, what? So there's some people in this gap period who are figuring out how to build their team. Right. If you don't have a team and it's just you, you're, you're overwhelmed. So that's where people, we have to catch up as artists. Right. Like, okay, you don't like doing social media. Or you don't like being on top of that. You better get somebody on right. your team who can do that. But, you know, I give them the old phrase, you know, be careful what you ask for, because all along I want my own label. I want to do my own thing. I don't want nobody over me. Woo, woo, woo. OK, you got that. So now you're your own marketing team, your own press, your own PR. You, you got to get it, especially I think after the pandemic, people are going to want to get out and hear music. And the ones that are not prepared and all this time they had to go to YouTube college and figure it out. They're going to have to get in step because music is going to be the, the, the prime thing that people, you know, crave for. Like, I know I want to hear a live band. I, you know, all this you know stuff online is cool. It's great. This virtual stuff is great. But I want to hear it. I want to feel it in my chest, you know. So yeah. people are going to have to have their stuff together. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, that's a great point. Um, but I love what you're saying. It's very hopeful to hear. Um, this, this, or you're painting the image of people now having this pent up demand, pent up thirst and hunger for the music. And we have to be ready to satisfy that. We got to be just ready for that. Whether musically, business wise, our relationships, all of that, we got to right. be ready for it. I agree. Well, I know you're going to be ready, Gerald. You know, you're always ready and been listening. I'm trying not to bop my head too much. Man, I'm, I'm like, watching you. You <laughs> trying to conduct an interview. <laughs> You can't start breakdancing over here. You're killing me with this, man. This is. Uh, look at this. You know what? You know it's funny. I'm going to tell you something funny. During my shows, I do the Gerald Beasley hip hop. You know, you, you don't know what it is because you're doing it. You don't see. So you play, you're like. I know. That's why I know you in it. You got that. Yeah. That's you. I'm like, man, I'm, I'm doing it. So I, I copied your head bop. I, I hope you don't. But you, you get that head going, you oh, gotta have that funk. Is that you? You trying to smile <laughs> no, that in, bro? That's, that's you, man. Me. Yeah, that's man. I don't, I don't do that. Yeah, but it's funny. I can't even deal with sometimes watching myself because of all those convulsions in the heads and my eyes rolling nah, you back. don't even move your shoulders. You just, you, you don't even move your shoulders. You just got the head thing going. You Don't mess with me yeah. now. I cut somebody. And you do it so smooth. See, your style of playing, I think, is different from most bass players because people expect all the thumbs and stuff like that. And you're like, no, I'm about to slice you real easy. You, you get home, you won't even know you're bleeding. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> Look at it. You just, you just go right up the scale. You about, I'm about to cut everybody. You know they cut. That's funny. Well, I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm unaware of so much of that, but I love being in the zone. You know, it's just about being in the zone, you know, just like sports. We're always talking about sports. Right, right. It's the same thing. It's like 
some of your best is, games. Rim is this big, right? Exactly. <laughs> some of your best games, you don't even know. Like they say, right. man, Doc, you that move you did, like what? What was I? I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't. I don't remember it. No. <laughs> like you couldn't, you couldn't miss a note if you wanted to. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 wonderful. You can get to the other place and not be self conscious. No, nope. you know, you're just floor. You're just flying. You know what I mean? So, so tell me, I know I asked you this question before, and it kind of, I guess it amazes a lot of people that when we're talking about playing the instrument itself, let me turn this down a little bit, we talk about play the instrument yourself, a lot of people assume that because you play the electric bass, you also play the upright bass, and you're like, no, 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 that's two different instruments, that's a whole nother thing. Mm-hmm. Some people do, but, you know, a lot of people don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I admire people that have a love for both and who, I mean, there are folks who we know, like Christian McBride, and there's a whole, it used to be rare. I think it's becoming even more uh, prevalent that you have folks who do both and do both well. Um, and I think, especially in, in an earlier time period, you know, if you played upright, you also wanted to be able to play electric for when it needed and vice versa. Right, right. It was like you, uh, out of necessity, you would learn that other instrument, right? Right. And for me, I've never felt that necessity, and I've I've never felt that um, that kind of um, connection with the acoustic bass. And a lot of it has to do with just the way I came up, because I um, I, I started off playing guitar and bass. Oh wow! Know? So my first teacher taught guitar and taught me bass. So some of the ways that he taught me about playing the bass came from his own mindset as a guitarist. And then I had to learn how to incorporate the other things that people did as a bass player. So my style is a mixture of those two things. So when I play the bass, I think of it as um, as a guitar with a very low voice. Oh, wow. I think of it as like uh, like a violin that's that has a that's a bigger version of the violin. Correct. It's a whole different family to me. It's coming out of the guitar family rather than the violin family, that's and so that's that's where I, that's my um, that's my connection to the to the electric bass. Again, I just think of it as an extension of the guitar family, and so some of the language I've taken from in the jazz uh, the jazz language that acoustic bass players have used. But then we got to even re- remember that in the early days of jazz. It wasn't acoustic bass that was the low end. It was the tuba. Right. Right? Exactly. And, right? Yeah. And, uh, and then in organ trios, you know, it's the organist playing the bass. So to me, it's it's natural for the guitar, the bass guitar, could also adopt that low end role in a jazz group. That's to me. Everybody doesn't feel that way. Some people only feel that it's authentic if it has an acoustic bass um connected to it right. but you know i've been really i guess empowered by certain musicians that kind of had the same kind of focus people like anthony jackson right you know um uh there have been a, a number of folks who kind of specialize in the electric based jacob Pistorius, of course yes um so there's you know and i feel like it's a young instrument too the bass was only the electric bass was really only really only it became its own like in the mid 50s Whereas the acoustic bass is centuries old, you know? Right. So it's still, there are people still developing dynamic and interesting things on that instrument. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I think you're like, I always describe people, you're like a more melodic player. 
um, the tones that come out of your bass and it's just people have to you have your own style and it's not like anybody else that I know um, and like I said you got that real sharp knife with it you just like you're, you're, you're a surgeon you know you, you just you, you know you just cut people you like they get home like dang I'm ble he cut me I, I don't how did this happen <laughs> because it's just like a smooth precision you know and it's just it's just a tight uh, a tone to your bass that I, I hear you know when you play I always know it's Gerald Beasley oh, even before you. I knew who you were I was just hearing about you I'm like who's this dude and he's like oh that's mm -hmm. Gerald Beasley you oh, know, thank so. you man I appreciate that thanks for the love I uh my sound and my style and my personality on the instrument is something that I'm still discovering. I'm like hearing new things in it all the time and hearing it in, in new ways. And that makes me feel good, especially in this time that we're in now. Correct. Like I can appreciate some of the things that uh, are coming out that's inside of me. Do you know what I mean? Right. It's like, and I, that's the only way I want to play. I want to play exactly who I am. You know what I mean? Right. I don't want to necessarily emulate someone and to be um, to express who they are and what they're thinking about, because to me, it's it's real personal. I don't know if that makes sense, but right. it's a very it's a personal thing. So I just want to be more of that. Well, I think it's great when you're allowed to play your style, when you don't mm -hmm. have to play someone else's style just because you play the bass, you know. Um, nobody's going to expect you to be Larry Graham or, or, you know, any of those guys that play differently, but you play like Gerald Veasley. So, um, you know, I, I often tell the thing about Nathan East, you know, his personality is just, I didn't, I was overwhelmed by his personality. And I think that you guys are similar in your personalities. And so when somebody is putting together like an all-star band, like at the Birch Music Festival that you do all the time, they may say, well, we need a bass player. And somebody said, no, 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 we need Gerald Veasley. Mm, you know, there's nice. a difference, you know, um, because they need your personality. They need the uh, your ability to get along with others. Um, you know, you don't bring the drama, you know, when you come. You're not going to be the person that they had to spend all the time with. You know, like, come on, Gerald, man. Come on, man. You know. <laughs> <laughs> So now you now you get into the real stuff because right. you know if if there are musicians and artists who are watching this, um, you and I both know know from our varying roles in the business how that is so essential to not be the problem child, right? You know because so much energy goes into managing and motivating and correcting that person that it doesn't leave energy for other things that you need to do, right? Right. And so you don't want to be that problem child. Just, right. you know, but sometimes it takes, I just talked to a musician friend of mine yesterday. We were talking about this very issue where he had to lead a band to understand the responsibility of being in a band. You know, he had funny, to, <laughs> wow. You know, it's funny that you should say that because I've, you know, learned a lot about managing people uh, dealing with the sweet jazz band over six years. And one of the things that I started doing is um, I kind of led them, each person at, at one point in time to be the musical director. So they can understand that it's not easy, that it's a lot of parts, there's a lot of phone calls, there's a lot of music coming in so that they would appreciate the music director we have more. That's and a, a lot of them came to me, it's like, man, I didn't know 
oh my god you, you wow and they've been around music a long time but they just bring their their guitar and they play or their drums and their sticks and then they go home you know they get the music and we come to sound check but when you're the musical director you know that's a lot of weight on you so i guess try to explain to people what it's like being uh, a music director with your contemporaries it's kind of like playing basketball and coaching at the same time you know it's fascinating i never thought of it like that but it really is um because you know just like the player coach right you not only have to be organized and help everybody get to where they want to be but you can't be the weakest link in terms of whatever your role is on the court too right you can't be missing free throws and fouling yeah. out and all that right so right. it's the same thing it's it's another level of responsibility because your your level of musicianship cannot change in fact it should be even heightened because as the music director now you not only have to know your parts but you should be aware of everybody's parts like not the quarterback of the team yeah right but you should know what what right. everybody's supposed right. to be doing um but i i think that's a great strategy the one you just mentioned about giving the other players an opportunity to take on that role that leadership role so they know what's required that doesn't mean they have to stay in leadership role that's but they great. can appreciate being a better right uh team player that's yeah. that's 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 powerful yeah because it because that's what you get a lot of times you know when you have a little you know friction or whatever between band members it's like well he's the musical director and blah 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 and the extra money you pay a musical director really not worth the you know what i'm saying it's, it's the title of in in my theory about the sweet jazz series i don't want to keep a music director you know, I wanted him to get a call from the Tonight Show or go on the road with Mike Phillips or, you know, and that's some of the things that have happened. And, uh, you know, I kind of got that from the owner of Suite. You know, he says, you know, three of my former managers now own their own place because people thought that if you can handle the traffic at this venue, then you can handle your own venue. So he said, it's not my desire to keep my managers up under my wing the whole time. So it's never been my desire to keep the band members up under me. And we've had, you know, two or three different keyboard players, three different, you know, uh, musical directors. And of course, Aaron and Sticks have been there for the duration. But we've had people that, that have gotten much bigger and better jobs just because of the the talk about them playing in the series and who they've played with. Um, you know, you don't get to play with Chuck Lowe and you don't get to play with Nathan East and Gerald Vesey. You don't you don't get to play with them every week. And that's every week what they have. You don't get to play with Cyrus Chestnut. You don't, you know, the Yellow Jacket. You don't get to see that. And so right. they have seen that and, and it's helped them move up. I'm just like what we call, you remember Manigault, right? Mm -hmm. The story of Manigault. So I'm just like Manigault. I'm just going to be here in the playground doing my thing. But it's up to them to go out and, and, and reach the outermost parts of the world and spread what they've learned by playing with all these people. Yeah, that's great that you're thinking about that because – you know, I was telling somebody else just in terms of leadership, um, we were having a, a conversation about a couple, and I, I won't name the organization, but an organization that we're affiliated with and just thinking, you know, I said, one of the problems that we have here is that not enough of us are thinking about when we're not going to be here. Because right. in business, there's a saying that there's no success without a successor. Right. So you that succession thinking, it's like, it's not just passing the torch, but you want you want the whole, again, back to my theory about you want everybody to win. You want the people after you to win, too. 
and you want to keep things moving, keep things vibrant. So you have to cultivate that. And that's what you're doing by cultivating these right. future players who are, they're going to impact the, the, the uh, impact the jazz community that you're building down there. But look, then they're going out the world to the world and impacting people other places too. So it's all about that. You know, if we can ever get outside of our own narrow thinking about what we're doing and thinking about how it affects affects people more broadly, I think we'd be better off. Um, another is a quick story about this idea of the transformation from being in the band to leading a band. Um, when I was with Grover Washington Jr. for a number of years, you know, uh, Grover was someone who uh, was really, he and his wife, Christine, they, they ran their business uh, impeccably. They treated us super well. I'm talking about the band members. They paid us very well. They were very organized. But, you know, being a side man, sometimes like we get together and we would have our little complaints on the side, you know, just whispering like, man, why don't they do this? And why aren't we playing there? And why aren't they taking care of this? And, you know, and we were thinking like, if, if, if that was us, you know, we would do this and we would do that. And then later on, it became us. Like I became a band leader. Right. Different and story, band, right? <laughs> and, and the band and my bandmates, we became band leaders. And one of the first thing I did, it was call Christine and say, I'm so sorry. Right. Because the, all the things I said, right. you never knew how much I complained. Yeah. But all the things that I complain about, I had no idea what it's really like to okay. be in that position as an artist, as a, as an artist having to lead a band and have a business that it's it's pretty serious. So you don't know what it is to be that until you try that. And then you have a, a deeper appreciation. So I literally, I'm not making, I'm not trying to be funny. I literally called her and apologized because wow. what I was apologizing for was not appreciating. Right, the work right? that goes into it. Yeah, not appreciating, yep. And then talking about learning on the fly, the very first uh, show I did at the, I think the Maple House or whatever, you know, I had organized everything and thought I was doing my thing, you know, and knew all this, you know, I've done all these shows. So the guy comes to me and he goes, so who's the stage manager? And I go, so, um, so what does the stage manager do? <laughs> you got to have a stage manager. You can't do a show without stage managers. Like, and I'm like, a stage manager wasn't in the budget, bro. <laughs> so I said, That's I guess great. I'm the stage, I guess I'm the stage manager. <laughs> I, I heard of it, but I didn't think. I just, just thought it was a guy, you know. It's just a guy <laughs> back there, you know. It's not that important, you know. It's just, but it's now like, you probably right, wouldn't do it right, without one, right? Right. But I was like, so he said, so who's the stage man? I said, we don't need a stage. He said, yeah, we do, man. We gotta have stage man. I said, well, that stage man wasn't in the budget, bro. I mean, I'm just, I guess it's me. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you learn, though. It really it is. is. I've learned so That's much stuff on the fly. It's been like crazy to learn things and you know try to pull things out and that's the fun part of it to me is like when something goes wrong how you have to pull it together to make it go right and smooth and then you're so happy that night like man yeah. they were here this afternoon oh my god what i would like to see happen and you mm -hmm. can maybe help facilitate this if you think it's necessary and the same thing we were talking about um 
musicians having a better understanding of what we do in terms of the collaboration with venues and having a more business mindset. You know, I think it's so important that people who are presenters have the benefit of each other's wisdom and knowledge. Right. Uh, because what's what I'm afraid of, not afraid of, one of the things I'm concerned about with the, with the current state that we're in is that there are going to be some folks who who will transition out of the business. Correct. Right? And that, just like we were talking about these artists that we're losing, that's not replaceable. So when, when a Doc Robinson, God forbid, decides to, you know, fold his laptop and says, I'm not doing any shows, that expertise goes away. And then when somebody comes along and says, well, I could do that. Right. <sighs> Until my that, beloved uh, ex-father-in-law uh, had a great state. I say he had a lot of sayings, but one of his great sayings is, you know, I don't always know what will work, but I know what won't work. Yeah. And I think absolutely. that's the message we have to tell people. We don't always know what will work. We know what won't work. And so yeah. I know a lot of what won't work. And and, and that's through the trial and error. Um, that's through losing that's through you know sitting up at places where it was just me and the bartender and the artist you know but some of the artists that I had a lot of respect for they played as if and you've told stories like that they played as if the place was packed and then you were saying about the four people that were there two of them were seriously important and and came up to you like yo man tell tell us your story Gerald about how you yeah, played. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was playing. I was playing in Rehoboth at a place called Sydney's. It's, it's no longer there, but it was a, a great little club. And uh, with my band, I think it was our. Might have been, well, I, right, it was one of the first gigs I got actually when I produced my first album, right there in those, those little beach town. And sometimes the place would be packed. It was a small club, but this one time, you know, they were expecting a storm, and there were literally, like, yeah, four people in the audience, but. You know, my my feeling was always like you treat every performance like it's the big time because or the biggest stage or the biggest um, opportunity, because you never know when that opportunity is going to come. And besides, you know, it's, it's your God has given you this gift. You express it. I don't care who's in the office, one person. But this one night, it really put me to the test about my theory about this, because there were literally four people in the audience. And uh, so we played, you know, we played, really it was a great set. And the owner came over to us after, the, uh, came over to me after the show and said, hey, I want to meet you, I want you to meet somebody. And went over to the, um, to the uh, table where these two gentlemen are sitting. And she introduced me to Robert Johnson, who was the founder and CEO of, of BET. Wow. And Butch Lewis, Butch Lewis one of the uh, most uh, amazing uh boxing promoters of all time who really loved the show so it's it just goes to show you like i've always had that theory of like you never know who's listening or how important it is and you bring your a game whatever but i hadn't really been put to the test of that moment to right. see if my theory was right and it was right yeah i mean I, yeah. i've learned that and uh you know because it's hard for me too because on shows where you have a lot invested to in it and you're also the host before you go on stage, you feel so kind of way. And I have to always remind myself, you can't blame the people that are here. 
you know, no, but you, that's you, right. That's what you feel like taking it out. That's Why right. is anybody here? This is gonna be that's a great right. show. I don't know. They paid. They're, they're in the seats. They're, they're not the ones you. To them, it for. is a great show because they right. came out. Right. <laughs> they, let's let's yeah. go bring it. Yeah. Don't mourn over the people that didn't come. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, because for me, I just try to have a great show, and once you get on the stage, it's that hat is off. The, of watching the door and hoping it doesn't rain that hat is off and, and let's let's do the show is on and sometimes you even have to remember you know remind the band because they're not hyped up um sometimes you know because you do a show every week so every week you have different emotions and you and i think i have to get my emotions to a peak every time i do a show to be consistent you know and sometimes you're not feeling it but you know uh, that's just life and I think, you know, the thing about we have to, the show goes on. And a lot of times I've been emotional, things have happened. But once the show starts, just like when I play basketball, my safe haven was on the court. I'll deal what's off the court when I'm off the court. But when I'm on the court, I got to play. Nothing's going to change in this hour and a half that I'm playing ball, you know. So I think the same thing. Uh, mm-hmm. When you're doing music, you're not always in that emo. And, and music is different than a regular job to me because it's spiritual. So if you're not in, I mean, and it's funny, I don't, maybe you can help me with this. I don't know what it's called, but I've been observing, you know, for these shows, a lot of artists and musicians. And somewhere between the last 10 or 12 minutes before <laughs> a show, no, that's a big A cup. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know it, man. You can't see my whole face from a mug. Oh, that's a mug. (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) But but somewhere, they go somewhere. I guess back in the day, somebody, people would take things or whatever they do. But those last. They don't want anybody talking to them. They right. go in the corner somewhere. They, I mean, do you still do that? Do that like ten minutes before show? You like okay, gotta get in that. Um, I yes, but I, I normally don't have ten minutes, especially in a place as small mm-hmm. as when we we're doing the, the shows at South for the Unscripted Jazz Series. Mm-hmm. Um, but I at least have to have a moment, and that's a beautiful thing too. You see more and more bands. Who pray before they go on exactly so so part of it is that you you want the result of whatever you're asking in the prayer but in another sense is to grab hands and get everybody on the same page right and connect and connect to what our purpose is right, right? just for that moment mm-hmm. so however you do it i mean when i when i work when i work with Zolido, it wasn't exactly a prayer but one right. of the, one of the things that he would do is he would always make sure there was a buffer between the time that we were enjoying ourselves backstage and maybe people, friends, family that are coming through to say hello, there's always be a buffer between that time and the time we go on stage where we can get centered. And there was one particular time where, um, you know, he was from Vienna, Austria. And whenever we go to Austria, he would see friends of his, they stop by, you know, he was really a hero in Austria. This is how much of a hero Zavano was. Uh, the year after I left his band, he sent me a postcard. And on the postcard was a stamp. And his picture was on the stamp. That's how much of a hero he was in Austria. Wow. <laughs> so, so, so we would when we would play in, in his hometown, 
people would come through who would like the president of Austria was at one of our shows. They're old friends, but I don't care who would, who would come. And I, I remember seeing him like having a great time. They're cutting up, talking about the old days, they're laughing. And then 15 minutes before the show, he would say, all right, you have to go. We must be by ourselves. And literally with no politeness, this is his, this is his phrase. All right, you have to go. We must be by ourselves. Right. I don't care who is the president. I don't care who it is because right. he recognized the sanctity of that time. And so many people have told me that. So many musicians have told me like, and, and the funniest story I had, I did a, I emceed a show at the Variety Playhouse with Stanley Clark. And uh, you've been to Variety Playhouse before, right? Yes. And you know that that wherever they, they call it a dressing room, but you go down the steps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so after the show, he had done this crazy solo on upright bass. He bent it over and played it like a guitar and spin it around and did all this kind of stuff. And everybody was just like, it was like a 15 minute solo, right? So then the show was over, blah, blah, blah. And I came out, thank you, blah, blah, blah. And so I, five minutes, 10 minutes later, I don't like to, you know, I like to bring the artists back up as soon as I can so they can sign CDs and autographs before people leave. So I go down there to get him. And he and I guess we were both kind of in the spirit of the show and what had just happened. So we're walking up the steps together and we were walking up the steps like two outlaws. I mean, the way we were kind of walking up the steps, you know, and he's walking up. And I'm like, I'm not going to say nothing to him unless he says something to me. And he turned to me and said, yeah, these people ain't really heard nothing like this before. And I'm like, no, they sure haven't. <laughs> because he even realized he did something special. And it was still on him spiritually five or ten minutes after the show so when we were walking up the steps him and i he turned to me and says you know people haven't really heard no stuff like that have they I'm like no no sir no no they haven't and that's all he said no i that's man i love stanley and i, I love that story because it kind of encapsulates so much about who he was who he is right in terms of being a, a showman right a, a genius a, an innovator a, a virtuoso and having confidence that's the other thing it's right. like you know with certain artists it's like i love these sports analogies right it's like michael jordan lebron right. you know what i mean right. these people they you know they, it's right on that edge between arrogance <laughs> and yeah and, and and just knowing who you are right but you kind of there's the necessity there and there's also um a, a love of just what you're doing and you want it to be on a high level right, right. so sometimes those folks will say you know you never heard nothing like this it's not even being cocky no it's like appreciating what just happened right in terms of exactly. you always trying to get to that level and maintain that level and like when you could even recognize it right we both that, recognized it at the same time <laughs> that's when he looked at me because we were silent and he's like they they really haven't heard nothing like that. i'm like no no they haven't really no yeah, I don't, I I don't know what it. you did myself, so I I don't know. Uh, I love it. Never happened again. It. So hey, man, it's been great. I mean, this we got to awesome. do this. We got to do this some more. It really felt good. It's our first one, and I, you know, yeah. I think it went very well, and I think people are going to enjoy Gerald Veasley. Tell them what uh, projects you have coming up. I know you're on so many different things. You know, you got like 19 hats, but just I got 19 hats. hats. <laughs> right. This is the year to bring a lot of these projects home. I got, I have, 
I have three, well, actually four different projects that I work on simultaneously. The most significant one right now is my Nina Simone project. You yes. know, I, I am in love with her music and I have an awesome collaborator in Carol Riddick. Yes. So we are finishing up an album of that. Also, this year is the 50th anniversary of the sound of Gamblin' Huff. Uh, wow. Yep. So I have another project that's in the can of the music of the, of the sounds of Philadelphia. I want to get that completed. Um, man. And um, also I'm involved with the base boot camp. Of course, this is our, that you're going to bring to Atlanta, right? We got to bring it to Atlanta. Come on, man. <laughs> this is our 19th, 19th year of doing it. We're wow. expanding it, expanding it to a virtual format as well. And of course, my work with jazz Philadelphia, which is a, um, uh, a great um, you can look us up jazzphiladelphia.org but it's a wonderful um, organization dedicated to celebrating jazz helping um, artists in the same way that we're talking about today create pathways for emerging artists create opportunities for emerging artists supporting arts education that's what we do at Jazz Philadelphia so man uh, uh, next time I'll bring you a big cup too oh my you know. big A cup that's <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to ask you what you have in there, so I'm just I'm going to leave that alone. <laughs> Gerald, it's been a pleasure, love you know, man. It's nothing but love, man. Until the next time, Gerald Veasley, y'all. Gerald Veasley, see, you got me stuttering just even thinking about what's in your cup. But, uh, <laughs> Thank you so much, Doc. Gerald Veasley, my well, great friend brother. of, I don't know, a million years and a million yes, more, sir. man. Much continued success, and thanks for yes, joining us you. again on Doc's Jazz Beat. Appreciate you. Keep it going. Yeah. Yes, sir.